Join us now for Health for Life, brought to you by Hamilton Healthcare System. Today, we're talking with Dr. Ashish Kabir of Hamilton Physician Group, Dalton. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Kabir. Glad to be back. We're glad you're here. Dr. Kabir is a neurologist at Hamilton Physician Group Neurology, located inside the medical plaza across from Hamilton Medical Center. He and Dr. Juan Gonzalez diagnose, treat, and manage issues related to the brain, spinal cord, nerves, and muscles. They specialize in the care of Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, seizure disorders, migraines, carpal tunnel syndrome, and strokes. Today, Dr. Kabir will be talking with us about dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and Parkinson's disease. Dr. Kabir, we have a whole lot of ground to cover today, so let's get started. Let's start with dementia. What is the difference between Alzheimer's disease and dementia? So Alzheimer's disease is a type of dementia. Think of dementia as a loss of thinking, remembering, reasoning skills, um, something that interferes with a person's daily life and activities. Alzheimer's disease is the most common dementia in older people. And by common dementia, I mean primary dimensions, dementias that are not caused by something else, like, you know, hitting your head or something along those lines, right? So this is one of the uh, more common, the most common cause of, uh, of primary dementias in older people. There's some other types of dementia, so I'll make that distinction now. Okay. Um, there's um, Lewy body dementias as well as frontotemporal dementias. So when you have damage to the brain's frontal and temporal lobes, uh, they can cause frontotemporal dementias, right? So that's essentially the description kind of in the name. Mm-hmm. Frontotemporal dementias essentially are damage or injury to the neurons, the brain cells themselves. As the neurons die in the frontal and temporal regions, these uh, areas shrink or atrophy. Eventually, when there aren't available brain cells left, the brain loses its ability to compensate and the damage causes difficulties in thinking, behaviors, and essentially the functions associated uh, and controlled by those parts of the brain. So some symptoms you might see might include unusual behaviors, emotional problems, difficulty communicating, difficulty with work, walking, that sort of thing. Yeah, I understand. Uh, Now, I have heard of young people, not, uh, and I don't mean kids, but I'm talking about uh, their 30s and 40s having issues with this. Is, is that common? Yes. Um, it's it's more common than you think it is. I think people tend to be, oh, this is just me or this is just so-and-so mm-hmm. a little bit. And so I think it's important to try to start to recognize these as diseases and sometimes uh, conditions that we really do have, if not cures for necessarily, certainly uh, things you can do to try to diagnose and try to control the symptoms. And with. maybe slow it down? That's it. Exactly. That would be the hope. But But uh, the first thing to do is to try to find out if there's something that's a primary dementia or a secondary dementia, which means is there something else causing the memory problems versus, you know, a a disease that in and of itself causes loss of brain cells, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Now, I had an aunt and uh, she was very young. She died probably in her late 50s. She had this issue. And the way that it was explained to me, and you tell me if I'm correct, it got to the point to where her brain was not able to 
to make her body breathe, and it, it just couldn't do any of these things that it does, you know, on its own without us thinking about that. Right. So it's very, very sad when you see uh, diseases like this in younger patients, of course. I mean, it's, of course, sad in everybody, but a lot of the uh, times you see uh, such conditions in younger patients, it's something very, um, very serious. Diseases like CJD, diseases like uh, infections, meningitis, encephalitis, things like that, they're rare, thankfully, um, but they can also be caused by multiple sclerosis, for example, or seizure disorders. All of these actually can lead to dementias, unfortunately, um, and oftentimes we see these uh, as very young patients. We try very hard to try to recover whatever brain tissue we can, so it, that's why it's so important to diagnose and get in uh, ahead of the uh, disease as much as we can, but it's not always that we get there. I understand, but there are ways that you can slow it down. We do, especially the secondary dementias really, really need aggressive management. Sometimes it's as simple as a vitamin deficiency, you know, um, uh, and we really have to check for that. Sometimes it's other diseases or rheumatologic diseases that can cause this. When you get to the primary dementias, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, frontotemporal dementia, while we don't have any disease-modifying therapies or disease-changing drugs, mm-hmm. we're getting very, very close. It's definitely something that uh, I would say within the next year or two, we should be hearing some positive news, I would be thinking. Wow. And this, I'm sure, has changed in the last 10 or 15 years also. Absolutely. I talked to some of my uh, you know, uh, colleagues who've been in practice for um, you know, 30 or 40 years, and they look at me and say, look at how many options you have. When I started, we had nothing. And, you know, you guys complain. (laughs) I think we always want more for our patients, right? That's what we want. Well, that's good. That's what us patients want to hear. (laughs) Uh, That's exactly right. Right. So um, I guess to finish talking about uh, the uh, frontotemporal and Lewy body dementias that I'd mentioned, the frontotemporal dementia is very common in younger patients. As I say, unfortunately, there's uh, not a lot of direct treatments that stop the disease yet, but we definitely want to make sure that we're addressing all the uh, concerns that the patient has, such as difficulty with what exactly? Like if you're having emotional behavior difficulties, we can address those. If you're having memory problems, we can address those. And then sort of we can tell you what your disease course would be expected to look like once we can make that diagnosis. The same thing is true of Lewy body dementia or uh, Parkinson's disease-associated dementia. They're very similar diseases um, and actually probably share, um, to the best of our knowledge right now, share similar underlying problem. But, uh, you know, if we can identify it, there's certainly medications and techniques we can use to try to make the disease more manageable and to control the course of the disease a little bit more, especially because we might be seeing it in, you know, slightly younger patients than, say, an Alzheimer's patient or yeah, something along those lines. I understand. I've got a friend, uh, a very close friend with Parkinson's disease. What are some of the symptoms of Parkinson's disease? Yeah, I do want to um, talk about Parkinson's disease. Traditionally, for a long time, almost before I went to medical school, I would say, we thought of Parkinson's as almost a pure motor disease. By that, I mean it was to do with more rigidity, difficulty walking. Tremors was the classic thing that everybody would talk about. I think as our uh, knowledge of Parkinson's has uh, grown over the last 10, 15, 20 years, we've really changed how we look at the disease. Mm, you don't, okay. a lot of people present with um, 
difficulty to, with smell, for example, like you would with COVID patients, you know? Um, difficulty so yeah. with smell? Yes, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, it's very common as an early presenting feature. A lot of people describe what's known as an internal tremor. I hear this again and again, and it's those are the kinds of symptoms that are becoming more and more patients describe. These are a great opportunity if you diagnose these patients early to give them much better quality of life and really get it, get ahead of their diseases. Well, good. So. We'll talk more about Parkinson's in a few minutes. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back talk about Alzheimer's disease. That's coming up next on Health for Life. If you're in need of medical care, don't delay. Your health won't wait. Hamilton Medical Center is ready to care for you. We are following CDC guidelines. Patients and guests are screened for COVID-19 symptoms. Those who are suspected to have the virus are treated in a separate area. Plus, Hamilton's high-powered UV light robots eliminate 99.9% of bacteria and viruses on surfaces. Please do not delay medical care. Your health won't wait. As always, Hamilton is here for you. Be a hero. Stop a stroke. If you think someone you're with is having a stroke, ask him to smile. Does his face droop? Have him raise both arms. Does one arm drift down? Can he repeat a simple phrase without slurring? If you see even one of these symptoms, call 911 right away. Because when it's a stroke, every second counts. Hamilton Medical Center has a nationally ranked, highly trained rapid stroke team ready to care for you. Hamilton Medical Center. Health for life. Right care, right time, right at home. Hamilton Physician Group now offers telehealth appointments through your mobile phone, tablet, or computer. Connect with your healthcare provider in the comfort of your own home. Call any Hamilton Physician Group office or visit HumilsonHealth.com/telehealth. For life today, we're talking with Dr. Kabir. Most of us are somewhat familiar with Alzheimer's disease, but can you tell us more about that specific disease? Yes. So Alzheimer's disease is probably the most common primary dementia, is how I would describe it. It's a type of dementia, as uh, we'd mentioned, is a loss of thinking, remembering, or reasoning skills, something that interferes with your daily activities of life, right? Alzheimer's disease is the first thing that, uh, you know, comes to mind when you think of memory loss and dementia as a syndrome in older people. Now, what are some of the early signs of Alzheimer's disease? Right. The most uh, common signs are memory problems. Typically, they're also the first signs of Alzheimer's disease, but different people can have different symptoms. So you can see decline in other aspects of thinking, word finding, um, what we call visuospatial issues, which are, you know, difficulty with figuring out how things fit in space, impaired reasoning, judgment. One of the classic things that they talk about is people either forgetting to pay bills or paying bills more than once mm. um, is a common sign. When all taken together, these are essentially uh, may meet the criteria for something called mild cognitive impairment. But not everyone meets that criteria. But a lot of people with mild cognitive impairment do progress to frank Alzheimer's. So I that's what are some of the stages of Alzheimer's disease? Yeah, so um, we talk about stages in Alzheimer's disease, so early, middle, and late. I like the terms mild, moderate, and severe because not everybody goes through them in order. Before we diagnose the disease, oftentimes patients are symptom-free, but we think that 
toxic changes have already started to take place in the brain at that point. And this is borne out by studies and imaging studies that we can do. In the early stages of Alzheimer's, a patient might start to have some small memory issues, you know, difficulty with processing, things like that. But then as the disease progresses, uh, memory loss, confusion starts to get a lot worse. Once we get to severe stages, it's really hard for the patients to avoid even things like uh, getting into trouble with not recognizing family and friends. Certainly, you may lose the ability to perform more complex tasks. Um, the most important one that comes to mind is driving, of course. You know, that would be the first one. And they may lose the ability to communicate. Sleep-wake changes may happen. There might be mood and hallucination changes, that sort of thing. Is that right? Now, sometimes, I, and I've heard this, that they have good days and bad days. Some good days they can remember things that they can't. And is this usually short-term memory or long-term memory, or could it be both? So classically, in Alzheimer's disease, it tends to be short-term memory. You tend to remember things like From your a long time marriage. ago? Right, yeah. yeah, like your wedding anniversary or something. You tend to remember those things. But, you know, as uh, we get later in the disease, sometimes you lose some of those things as well. And you might lose, like, say, your grandchildren's names or something along those lines. That's not uncommon. Now, what are some of the causes of Alzheimer's disease? That's been changing a fair bit over the last little while as we get a better, better understanding of the disease. But long story short, uh, we think that there is a genetic component. We think that there is a abnormal proteins called beta amyloid and tau, which are involved in injury to the brain cells and, and death of those brain cells that happens in Alzheimer's. But a lot of these are probably all happening at the same time. There is probably a, pre a genetic predisposition. So you're talking well. about hereditary. Yes, a hereditary predisposition. Right, exactly. A lot of people have uh, family members that have Alzheimer's. Oh, my, You'll hear a lot of patients say, my mother had it or my sister has it or something along those lines. Uh, but that's not always true. You can certainly, if you have Alzheimer's disease uh, at an earlier age, a lot of the time the disease can be hereditary, but a lot of people get it much later in their life and, you know, you can't identify, uh, or at least you certainly wasn't diagnosed, someone in their family that has it. Yeah, when, now, when someone comes to you and they have advanced and Alzheimer's disease, and they're just not able to, to function, there's so many things that they can't. But let's go back to what I said before. They have a good day and a bad day. Right. What would cause the good day? I mean, it's not like the, these brain cells come back to life, is it? Yeah. So if you think of brain cells as individual blocks, if that makes sense, that store information, that doesn't make any sense, right? So that's why we think people actually have good days and bad days. It's not so much that you have blocks of information, but the pathways that connect these blocks of information, that's what's injured. So on a good day, your brain can communicate itself with itself very quickly, very well, and that's what you would call a good day. Your memory comes back, you see things, and you're like, oh yeah, that's who that was. On a bad day, maybe you're distracted, maybe you're nervous, maybe you're anxious, maybe you're in an unfamiliar environment. All of those things can cause bad days, if that makes sense. You know, it's harder for the brain to use its own highways, if you want, to get information from one side to another. So that would be what we think is responsible for good and bad days. But unfortunately, with all the neurodegenerative diseases, diseases, you will start to have more bad days than good. What we want to do is to give you the maximum use of your good days and to, to prevent the bad ones as much as we can. So it's at this point, there is not a cure. There is unfortunately not a cure. Not no. a cure. But at this point, sometimes 
hopefully more times than not, you can slow it down. Absolutely. You know, I think uh, what we can do is we can, uh, we have a couple of medications that I want to talk about, but what's really exciting and uh, watch your newspapers because this is something we've been hoping for for a long time. We do believe that, you know, we will sooner rather than later have what we call disease-modifying therapies, which in theory should stop the progression of uh, the cell death. This is hopeful. This is me, the optimist, uh, right. doing this. But we're very close. We've come very close a number of times. So I'm Wonderful. Hopeful. So stopping the progression. So what you're saying is when you get to this point, you won't get any better, any but it just won't get any worse. Right. That would be wonderful. Wouldn't it? That'd Wouldn't be that be fantastic? Yeah. Uh, that is great information. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the treatments available at Hamilton Physician Group Neurology for Alzheimer's disease. We'll be right back. Join us on a journey to better health, health for life. Simply put, that is why Hamilton Medical Center is here. From primary care and specialty care practices near you, an accredited chest pain center, a certified joint replacement program, a new children's institute, cancer institute, endoscopy center, and more. Hamilton is here for you and your family. Learn more at HamiltonHealth.com. Hamilton Health Care System. Health for life. Be a hero. Stop a stroke. If you think someone you're with is having a stroke, ask him to smile. Does his face droop? Have him raise both arms. Does one arm drift down? Can he repeat a simple phrase without slurring? If you see even one of these symptoms, call 911 right away. Because when it's a stroke, every second counts. Hamilton Medical Center has a nationally ranked, highly trained rapid stroke team ready to care for you. Hamilton Medical Center, health for life. Is it time for a heart-to-heart? Ask your primary care physician if you should have a heart-to-heart with one of Hamilton Physician Group's board-certified cardiologists. If you have high cholesterol, high blood pressure, or diabetes, this can be especially important. Hamilton Physician Group Cardiology, located at 1436 Broderick Drive in Dalton. Call 706-226-3434 or visit hamiltonhealth.com slash cardiology. That's 706-226-3434. Did you know that colon cancer claims over 50,000 lives each year? The good news is that colonoscopies save lives. Convenient appointments are available at Hamilton Medical Center's new Bandy Endoscopy Center, located at the corner of Broadrick and Memorial Drives. Hamilton follows CDC guidelines and screens for COVID-19 symptoms at the door. If you are age 50 or older or have a family history of colon cancer, ask your primary care provider to schedule your colonoscopy. Please don't delay important medical screenings. Your health won't wait. If you're in need of medical care, don't delay. Your health won't wait. Hamilton Medical Center is ready to care for you. We are following CDC guidelines. Patients and guests are screened for COVID-19 symptoms. Those who are suspected to have the virus are treated in a separate area. Plus, Hamilton's high-powered UV light robots eliminate 99.9% of bacteria and viruses on surfaces. Please do not delay medical care. Your health won't wait. As always, Hamilton is here for you. Welcome back to Health for Life, talking with Dr. Kabir from the Hamilton Physician Group 
Neurology. Great having you with us, Dr. Kabir. Uh, we were talking about Alzheimer's disease before we took that break. Tell us about some of the treatments that are available for Alzheimer's disease. Right. It's very important to know, as we talked about before, that there isn't what we call disease-modifying therapy, but that's just important to stay up front. There's a lot we can do to make your experience of the disease better and overall try to give you the best quality of life possible with this diagnosis. So that being said, there's two major classes of medication. Mm -hmm. that we use to treat Alzheimer's. The first one is what are known as choline esterase inhibitors, and the second one is called mementin. Both of these have been shown to decrease the rate at which memory loss occurs in Alzheimer's, so that's what we use. The, uh, the first class, the choline esterase inhibitors, so if you think back to what happens in Alzheimer's disease, what we think happens is when the cells in the brain die, those cells were responsible for producing a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. One of the normal things that happens is your brain breaks down this neurotransmitter so that more can be available if you want to send a new message using an enzyme called acetylcholinesterase. All that means is when the cells die, no acetylcholine, so any even remaining cells that produce it, they'll get used up really quickly. So if we block that process, mm -hmm. the patient has more neurotransmitter available and therefore the patient doesn't have quite the degeneration that we expect. So that's what we think happens with acetylcholine is esterase inhibitors such as Aricept, Exelon, the patch, and Razadine. And then Mementin, what we think happens is it may help the patient focus a little bit, again, by modifying neurotransmitters. There's a number of mechanisms that happen. I guess what I'm trying to say is uh, when you first come to see your doctor and, you know, you get diagnosed with Alzheimer's, you might get treated with Aricept. These are more used in, um, and they're FDA approved for mild, moderate, and severe stages, but more used in the mild and moderate stages. They're relatively very well tolerated medications. The side effect profile is actually pretty clean. Obviously, every time you add a medication that works in the brain, you might not have perfect results, but most people tolerate these. And honestly, in my 10 plus years of prescribing these, I, I don't think I've really had anybody stop it for a side effect reason. And then as the disease progresses, some people add uh, memantin um, when you're beginning to hear, um, to approach severe uh, memory issues. Mm -hmm. So both of these are really, really well tolerated medicines. The patients like them a lot and they allow the brain to continue normal functioning for as long as the patient has cells left to make those neurotransmitters. Denepazil is an oral pill that's also known as Aricept. Uh, galantamine is as well. And then Rivastigmine, or uh, what's known as an Exelon patch, is something you don't actually have to take orally. So that makes it easier but for But this is a, a patch you wear on your patch. arm, That's maybe? right. Exactly, okay. yeah. And, uh, like a nicotine patch. Right, okay. right. Just like that. That makes it easier for the patient to remember to, to put it on, right? You don't have to have to deal with that. Lots of great information. Uh, Dr. Kabir, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Parkinson's disease on Health for Life. Is it time for a heart-to-heart? -heart? Ask your primary care physician if you should have a heart-to-heart -heart with one of Hamilton Physician Group's board-certified cardiologists. If you have high cholesterol, high blood pressure, or diabetes, this can be especially important. Hamilton Physician Group Cardiology, located at 1436 Broderick Drive in Dalton. Call 706-226-3434 or visit hamiltonhealth.com slash cardiology. That's 706-226-3434. 
If you're in need of medical care, don't delay. Your health won't wait. Hamilton Medical Center is ready to care for you. We are following CDC guidelines. Patients and guests are screened for COVID-19 symptoms. Those who are suspected to have the virus are treated in a separate area. Plus, Hamilton's high-powered UV light robots eliminate 99.9% of bacteria and viruses on surfaces. Please do not delay medical care. Your health won't wait. As always, Hamilton is here for you. Welcome back to Health for Life. Today, talking with Dr. Kabir. Let's talk about Parkinson's disease. What is the cause of Parkinson's disease? Right. Parkinson's disease is a terrible disorder that affects the nervous system. It's um, also a neurodegenerative disease, so something bad happens to the cells in the brain. That's pretty much what all the neurodegenerative diseases are. In Parkinson's, what happens, we think, is a abnormal protein builds up in a particular area of the brain, and that causes the uh, cells in that area to die. The cells in that area, we think, are responsible for producing a neurotransmitter called dopamine. You have less dopamine. I have heard of dopamine. Right. It's a neurotransmitter that the brain uses to communicate with itself. A lot of the cells that die are in the uh, what are known as basal ganglia areas, and those cells are responsible for movement. So a lot of patients with Parkinson's have difficulty with movement because they don't have that dopamine. So that's what we think the process is. It's a very simplistic explanation. We think there's a lot going on other than that as well. But basically, if you can replace the dopamine, that's usually the first treatments for Parkinson's disease, if that makes sense. And how do you replace the dopamine? Is that something you take orally? Yes. Yeah. So um, at the beginning stages anyway, we've gotten really smart. Actually, since about the 60s, 70s or so, when the first doses of carbidopa, levodopa is the name of the medicine, came out, you know, we've been pretty good about being able to at least control the motor symptoms of Parkinson's at the beginning, which are the major things you see when those cells in those motor areas die. So what you do is you take a pill, typically about three times a day or so, with meals, and your uh, shaking or difficulty with movement, such as rigidity, difficulty walking, a lot of that gets a lot better. Patients also say they feel better overall in ways they can't always describe. So that medication is actually usually still, to this day, my my first-line treatment. Good. Glad to hear that, and I'm glad you're on top of that. Now, is Parkinson's a disease that is very fast-moving? I mean, uh, you get it, and it just happens real quick, or is it slower for some people? How does that work? It does uh, vary in rates. I think that it it really does vary. If you have uh, unfortunate younger patients in their 40s or so that get it, typically that can be... In your 40s? I typically think of this being someone that is on like an elder. Right. You see it in people in their 40s? I do. Parkinson's disease. Yeah, I unfortunately uh, do have a few patients in their 40s. When you have um, the disease in in the earlier ages, uh, what can happen is that it can actually progress a little faster. Idiopathic or I guess more common, more classic, if you want to call it Mm -hmm. that, Parkinson's disease tends to be most prevalent in sort of late 50s to 60s and maybe even early 70s. After that, it's actually relatively rare to have new uh, diagnoses of Parkinson's, although we do see that as well. That middle range, um, you know, to answer your question, sort of progresses, you know, I I mean, if if there weren't for the new medications that were coming out, this would be more true, but probably at the five-year mark is when you really start to notice limitations in your ability, and at the 10-year, you probably need some assistive devices. But 
we're getting much better than that at things. You know, there's always new stuff available. There's surgical options that are available as well. We have the ability to take care of a number of patients who've had surgeries for Parkinson's and who this are doing fantastic. This would be brain surgery, I Brain understand. surgery, that's yes. right, yeah. So what we do is, um, you know, the I remember I was saying that the cells produce this neurotransmitter dopamine. Right. So what we can do is we can put an electrode into the brain for very advanced Parkinson's patients to try to stimulate the brain to produce more of its own dopamine. And oftentimes... That way, we don't have to struggle with the side effects of the medicines that, you know, you have. You don't have to take the medicine maybe quite as often or you don't have to take as much of it. And uh, patients do a lot better. They love it once they get it. So Is that right? I can't imagine. But if, if I were to be diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in the early stages, you're looking at about five years before it gets... That's typical, I would say. For idiopathic Parkinson's, that's about typical. Um, I think at the five-year mark, or let's put it this way, if you come to see me with really bad symptoms, you've probably at least had the disease for about five years or so, Is would that be right? my guess. Yeah. yeah, I understand. Are there tests that can be taken yeah. to, to find out how far along you are or yeah. if this is something that you, is just starting? Going to progress, definitely. We uh, To make the diagnosis of Parkinson's is a little difficult because a lot of it is done very clinically. You have to look at the patient. It's not like I can go into your brain and see if you've killed off your mm. dopamine cells. Yeah. But we sort of can, too. There's a study called a DAT scan that uh, Hamilton is able to offer that can show and really easily help us diagnose uh, Parkinson's that we're lucky to have that many other major medical centers even don't have. So we've but been able to do this is available that. at Hamilton. It is ha- available in Hamilton, yeah. Oftentimes your neurologist, either I or Dr. Gonzalez, will order the test when, you know, if you're earlier on in the disease and we're trying to establish the diagnosis, mm-hmm. where your symptoms may not have progressed to the point where the diagnosis is very easy. So maybe we'll order a DAT scan at that point. A lot of people can be diagnosed just by looking at the patient, especially if you have seen a lot of Parkinson's patients. But uh, not everybody is that easy to diagnose. The reason, of course, to diagnose early is you want to get the treatments in early so that we give you the best quality of life possible, right? I understand. Dr. Kabir, I can't believe that we are running out of time. It has been so interesting, the things that you've had to tell us in neurology from Hamilton Physician Group. Uh, Great having you on the show. Before you leave, is there anything that you would like to leave our listeners with? So I would um, strongly encourage you, you know, if you've been given a difficult diagnosis that you're coping with or a loved one is coping with, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, you know, I, I think you should definitely make sure that you speak to your neurologist about what options are there on the horizon as well as what's available right now, because I think that's really where the hope is for these diseases. I want to be very encouraging about this. I really do think that we can really offer significant quality of life differences if you keep up with your uh, doctor's appointments and keep up with your relationship with your neurologist, because we really do have some really great things to offer, um, and we expect to have more in the near future. So hopefully you'll feel comfortable talking to your neurologist about all aspects of your health care, and we'll be happy to help. Dr. Kabir, thank you for being a guest with us today. For more information or an appointment at Hamilton Physician Group Neurology, call this number. 706-275-6121, 706-275-6121, or visit hamiltonhealth.com slash neurology. Join us on a journey to better health, health for life. Simply put, that is why Hamilton Medical Center is here. Hamilton is here for you and your family. Learn more at hamiltonhealth.com. Hamilton Health Care System, health for life. 
If you're in need of medical care, don't delay. Your health won't wait. Hamilton Medical Center is ready to care for you. We are following CDC guidelines. Patients and guests are screened for COVID-19 symptoms. Those who are suspected to have the virus are treated in a separate area. Plus, Hamilton's high-powered UV light robots eliminate 99.9% of bacteria and viruses on surfaces. Please do not delay medical care. Your health won't wait. As always, Hamilton is here for you. Thank you for listening to Health for Life, a presentation of Hamilton Healthcare System. 